On Sunday mornings, we've been journeying through the book of 1 uh, Peter together. If you have your Bibles and you want to grab hold of them. However, if you could join me in Colossians chapter 1, if you could draw your attention there, open up to Colossians chapter 1. And if you do need a Bible this morning, the men in the aisles have some copies. You can just slip your hand up. They'd be happy to give you a copy of God's Word so you can follow along as we study the Scriptures together. Just get their attention. Next Sunday, we'll pick back up right where we left off in 1 Peter chapter 2. In fact, take note of if you kind of read ahead and first uh, Peter, we're right about to turn the corner and probably the next maybe two weeks or so to address the subject of marriage. So again, uh, be some interesting uh, things to look at together in God's perspective. Certainly our culture needs some real instruction nowadays, it seems, in regards to marital relationships. And maybe you know someone who could use a little bit of help uh, in regards to a marriage relationship. Uh, that's right as we get to First Peter chapter 3, which is right around the corner. So next Sunday, we'll pick back up in our First Peter study. However, this morning, morning, uh, Colossians chapter 1, I want to address some things together with you. Uh, Colossians 1, if you draw your attention with me to verse 28 and 29, let me just read those verses and we'll pray together. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 28, Paul regarding Jesus says, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect, the idea is mature, in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. And Father, we ask as we open your word this morning that you just please help us, Lord, to continue to be in an attitude of worship. Even as we sang and prayed, Lord, we believe that as we open your word, that it's just as much a part of worship. And Lord, we want to worship in spirit and truth, so we ask that your Holy Spirit would take the truth of your word and would speak personally and directly to each one of our hearts this morning. Lord, bless your word and give us an ear to hear what you want to say. And we ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. You know, what would you say is church vision? And in relation to church vision, I guess I would also ask with that, is that really necessary? Or is church vision necessarily helpful? And I guess together with that, uh, as a church, do we have one? Do we have a church vision? Well, it's been on my heart to kind of uh, take one Sunday morning together with you, especially some of us have been together for some time now, to try and answer uh, some of those things. And so this morning's study, I want to kind of, uh, again, take a break from our regular study in First Peter here to kind of address some of those things. Again, if, if you were to try and define what we mean when we say the word church vision, I think kind of the idea of a church vision is sort of a set of statements that probably communicate the aim or the goal of a particular local church together with that maybe then sort of a brief description of some of the reasons behind that aim or that target of that particular local church and maybe even then some of the process or methods or approaches that are used to then arrive at those particular spiritual objectives now let me just say because I am not a real, if you would, visionary type personality by nature. I know I'm not an individual that tends to have real 
kind of innovative, creative ideas. I have other friends in ministry that are very gifted in this area, and they're just very visionary. They have incredible kind of innovative ideas all the time. I admit that's not my strength, and so in light of that, I also admit that it is not a strength of mine typically to kind of establish and share a real specified uh, church vision with, you know, maybe you know, creative outlines and interesting statements and so forth. However, that being said, I want you to know that's not because I don't have a clear sense of what I believe uh, is the aim or the target of our particular ministry regarding what I believe is the reason and purpose for the existence of our church or what I'm called to be engaging in, what we are called to be endeavoring to do and focused upon. Uh, I do lead with a sense of aim as what I know my ministry objective is and what I believe ultimately the heart of God is for how I see that is the way or the approach in which we are to take in order to get what is the heart of the Lord. It seems to me, what I've discovered in my own personal life and my own pastoral ministry, it seems to me that those kind of things, they kind of come to me, if you would, sort of uh, with some various key scriptures rather than just some interesting ideas that I can then uh, connect scriptures to. It seems that there are a few key passages which are close to my heart that influence what my or our aim is as a church. So rather than share with you a sort of a, a vision statement or some vision statements and then take uh, some scriptures that I can use to validate uh, those points as kind of supporting and validating scriptures to those ideas, what I want to do instead is just kind of consider some passages of scripture that I'm uh, kind of motivated by myself that I think are applicable to church life and kind of set those before you and from them hopefully keep our church uh, on target with those kind of things and in alignment before the Lord. And I know typically on a Sunday morning, we usually just take one passage of scripture like we're doing with First Peter, moving through the Bible together, uh, you know, through books of the Bible. We usually take one passage of scripture and we explain it, we unpack it, and we expound upon it. This morning, I want to ask for your patience for one Sunday. What I want to do, I realize it's a little more of a kind of a, a topical approaches, I actually want to kind of look together at three different passages of scripture, kind of overview them together and share some of these things that I envision for our church's existence. And my hope in doing such is really a couple of things, is first of all, that hopefully you will then as the congregation and the family of God together here at Calvary Chapel, have kind of sort of a, a clearer idea and understanding of why we operate the way that we do. Uh, and why we don't operate maybe in certain ways uh, that we choose to refrain from. To, to hopefully, as you hear the word of God in these areas, I'm hoping too that such things will resonate with your heart if this is the family of believers that you feel called to be a part of. And then ultimately that one result will also as well keep all of us as a team of servants and the body of believers uh, if you would, sort of aiming at the same spiritual goals and that we would all be using the same set of spiritual blueprints to try and accomplish the work of the Lord in our midst that he has called us to do in the region and area he's put in. Again, Habakkuk chapter 2, God's word says this, write the vision, make it plain on tablets that he may run 
who reads it. Write the vision, make it plain so that people can read that vision and then run along with it. So that's my heart this morning to kind of do that here with Calvary Chapel Gateway to talk about some foundational elements that I believe God intends for us uh, as a local church that we can use those understandings as sort of guideposts as we run God's course together and as well keep those as guideposts so that we stay on track and don't go off the choo-choo track as I have seen unfortunately other fellowships do in times past and certainly that's not something I would ever want for our fellowship so again Colossians chapter 1 here, I drew your attention first to these uh, verses, particularly verse 28, and that should be a familiar verse, especially if you come here regularly on a Sunday morning, because you notice it's the one verse that we actually put on your church bulletin is Colossians 1.28. It's been there since we've started. Paul says here in Colossians 1.28 regarding Jesus, him we preach warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Now quickly, the background of what Paul has just been speaking about prior to these verses is Paul talking about he knows how God has clearly called him to function as a minister. He said there in verse 25, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. And here in these verses, Paul, prior to our text that we're looking at, is talking about how he understood the main part of his spiritual responsibility as a minister was to fulfill God's word and to fulfill a stewardship from God to make Christ known to people. To introduce people to Jesus Christ, revealing to people that Jesus needs to be their savior from their sin and that Jesus desires also to be the Lord of their life and to reign over their life and how Jesus would even come and enter into their life in a personal real way through a relationship by their putting their faith and trust in him through his living presence he would come and actually live together with them in an intimate relationship now regarding Jesus Christ regarding Jesus himself Paul says in verse 28 there you look at our text him that's Jesus, him we preach. Those are probably the most important three words in that entire verse, in my opinion. And if there were three words that I could pick to have to use, those are probably the three I would pick. Him we preach. In other words, Jesus is who we present. Jesus is who we proclaim. Paul said when he was writing to the Corinthian church there, he said, we preach Christ. And he said, when I came, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And keep in mind, Paul was brilliant. Paul theologically knew things that superseded probably what most of the most incredibly gifted theologians throughout history have known. Paul was a brilliant man. However, Paul, you notice, he actually purposefully in a sense, simplified his ministry focus so that he could reach the most people and make sure that he kept the focus upon the right things rather than missing the opportunity to keep the main thing the main thing. Paul preached and presented Jesus to people, who Jesus is. He told people that they need Jesus. And even after he pointed people to Jesus for salvation, his ministry theme just really seemed to be very simplistic 
very focused. He told people they needed the Lord initially, and then he just kept pe pointing people back to Jesus continually. So first he introduced them to Jesus, and then everything, it always came back to, you know what, you, you just need to seek the Lord. You, just, you need to get right with the Lord again. You need to start praying again. You need to start reading your Bible and letting Jesus speak to you again. And, and he always just kept pointing people back to the Lord, not to himself, not to a church, or not to a program. But he just, look, you, just, you need the Lord. You, and he just kept pointing people back to the Lord and presenting to G Jesus to people because he understood people need to encounter Jesus for genuine salvation. That's what the initial bare bones need is every person's life. They need Jesus Christ as their Savior and as the Lord of their life. Now, that as well is the same approach even when ministering to believers. Once people meet Jesus... The same approach to ministry needs to continually take place because as Christians, is it not true, we all need to keep on experiencing Jesus in our relationship with God. That is the primary need. We just need to keep experiencing more and more of Jesus. And that's why Paul says it's him. That's what we preach, present, and proclaim simply before anything and above everything else. And can I tell you this morning, that is what I seek to follow as a pattern. If I stop following that pattern, please tell me. Please pray for me. My pattern is to want to just present Jesus to people. And I pray that our model of ministry in our church would be a church that exemplifies that, that we present Jesus to people, that we point people to Jesus. And after introducing people to Jesus, notice Paul also, from our verse, understood that people also need to then grow and mature spiritually because he also says in verse 28 here that he in seeking wisdom from God with his responsibility as sort of a shepherd and an overseer he said seeking God's wisdom also we see in verse 28 his ministry involved also continually warning everyone and he also says continually teaching everyone now, two important words there that speak of spiritual development he speaks of warning, and the idea there of that term is to put someone in mind of something or to caution or to counsel. So in love, Paul, as a faithful shepherd, continually was looking out for the welfare of the sheep and always trying to keep them safe from Satan, trying to keep them protected from sin. And the consequences and the damaging effects spiritually and morally and personally and maritally and, and from a family perspective and a church perspective that sin and Satan will have if they begin to creep into and have control over the lives of God's people. So Paul, as a faithful shepherd, said, you know, part of my responsibility is to be reproving and exhorting and correcting erring sheep when they begin to wander off course from the flock or they begin to sort of, you know, get off track in their thoughts and their behavior, that part of his responsibility was to be putting people in remembrance of spiritual realities, to be cautioning and counseling people about consequences of decisions, of outcomes, of behaviors and patterns, and to continually warn the people to protect them from sin and Satan and the weaknesses in all of our lives. And secondarily, he wasn't just warning, but he says also teaching every man. And the idea there of teaching speaks of giving spiritual instruction or spiritual training. It speaks of supplying a diet of spiritual truth 
to feed and nourish God's people, giving them a consistent diet of the word of God and spiritual truth through teaching, through counseling, one-on-one instruction, so with the purpose of educating the people of God, equipping the saints, strengthening them in God's plan. And again, that is my focus, I believe, for ministry. My focus is to present Jesus to people and to warn and to teach people, to help them in that way spiritually. And I pray that we as a church, through our ministries and the different things that we do as we operate as a local body, I pray that's what we would be. A church presenting Jesus to people who is giving counsel and warning and and, and admonishment to people and at the same time are teaching people the ways of God and how to grow in their relationship with God. And notice the aim and target of Paul's pastoral ministry. And I think really with his team, because you notice verse 28, he uses the word we, not just himself. Paul was a team ministry. He wasn't a, hey, I'm, I'm your Christian celebrity at the church uh, so uh, support me and pay attention to me and, and I'll be the face for your cute little Christian ministry that wasn't Paul Paul was someone who understood collectively working together with God's people letting those who were gifted operate in the areas they were gifted in looking for ways to defer responsibility and sharing together in the work and working together collectively with a team in unison because Paul says notice he says him we preach we do this and he says as well in the verse here that we do such what was the the aim or the target of the team with paul that we verse 28 we may present every man perfect in christ jesus that word perfect there is a word that means complete mature or grown up one translation renders this For we want to present everyone to God spiritually mature in their relationship to Christ. See, Paul's style of ministry, and I think his team's style of ministry as they served together, is that they wanted to see people meet Jesus in salvation. But there was a sense of stewardship from God as well. He said, this is a stewardship given to me from God for you. And there was a sense of stewardship that, look, we can't just lead people to Christ and then just let them go. Great to lead people to Christ, but that is just the start of our responsibility and stewardship. We need to lead people to Christ, yes, but we also then have a very important responsibility to help people mature, to develop, to not remain like infants in the nursery who are fussy, selfish, little baby Christians. But no, we need to make disciples and develop people to become mature Christians, to grow up in their, fear, uh, their spiritual faith and to walk with the Lord and become stable. And I think Paul viewed spiritual fruitfulness in ministry not in the quantity of people and numbers in the crowds, but in the quality of the people that we are having an effect upon and ministering to, what is the quality of their spiritual life? Are they growing? Are they maturing? Or are this, is this group of people more spiritually solid now than they were six months or a year ago? Have they grown up in the Lord? Are people you know, repenting of sins and, and wrong areas in their spiritual life and saying, I want to get right with God 
because of the result of the ministry that was taking place through Paul and his team's life. Again, Paul saw this as the aim or the goal to bring people to maturity, to bring them to a more complete state spiritually. And again, my desire for the focus of our fellowship is that it would be the same aim, the same target. Listen, I can tell you with tremendous conviction in my heart that my foremost focus for us as a church is to help people develop into spiritual health and maturity. Not necessarily, listen, to entertain any of you, nor to operate in ways whereby we try and cater to you like customers because we want to keep your business. My heart, my focus that I feel is my stewardship and our stewardship from God is to help cultivate spiritual growth, development, people deepening their roots in the things of God so that they are walking closely with Jesus and progressing spiritually. And Paul says here in verse 29, it's to this end I also labor striving according to his working which works in me mightily so paul says yes i labor but i labor confidently because i believe that the lord is working with me in this because he believed this is the work the lord wants to do and paul believed look i'm just throwing my partnership in with what jesus is already trying to do and therefore he empowers it and he enables it because it is in line with what he wants to fulfill so that sort of focus is there on kind of the, again, the, the ministry or the minister's service to develop more mature Christians. But how does this connect with God's purpose for the church? How does this connect with God's purpose for the church or for a church? Well, turn with me just to your left to the book of Ephesians. You go to Philippians and then one more book back, you come to Ephesians so that we don't lose time here. You're flipping around your Bible just to your left briefly. And Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, and if you can draw your attention to the 11th verse. Again, speaking of Jesus here, Ephesians 4, 11, says he, Jesus himself, gave some to be apostles some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now pause with me there. Give me your attention. Notice not only verse 11 has the Holy Spirit distributed, the Bible teaches this, that the Holy Spirit has distributed individual gifts to all believers. The Bible says every born-again believer has received at least one spiritual gift, if at not times there are more than one gift operating through all of our lives. We've all received spiritual gifts to operate among the church body, to edify and serve one another. But the Bible also teaches, verse 11 here, that Jesus himself, as the head of the church, has also called and anointed certain men whom he has given as gifted men to the church in a sense as a gift to serve his body to strengthen his body to accomplish his purposes for the church men who he puts in places of sort of offices spiritually who are given supernatural abilities enablements from God's spirit to serve Jesus's church verse 11 says that Jesus himself personally gave these gifted men 
to his church to help. And he mentions a list of some of those individuals. He mentions verse 11, some to be apostles. Now, as soon as we hear the word apostle, maybe you're like me, we go, wait a minute. Are they still around today? I mean, I know Jesus had his 12 apostles, but are apostles really still around today? Well, I can tell you my conviction, and you don't have to agree with it. You should study the Bible for yourself and not believe necessarily what I believe. My conviction to that answer is yes and no. And this is what I mean by that. I believe there were definable differences when you study the scripture between the original 12 apostles who Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 says that the church was built on the foundation of those apostles. And I believe that there are clear, distinct qualifications that were necessary among those initial apostles who were establishing the early church. And so in a stricter sense of the New Testament, I don't believe there are still apostles as there were the ones that Jesus selected. However, in a broader sense, I do believe there are those in the church today who are still fulfilling an apostolistic type ministry. Again, the word apostle just simply means a sent one. It means someone commissioned and sent by God. And in that sense, I still see in the body of Christ that Jesus is still divinely calling and sending people out in a sense to pioneer works for God. That there are still people who the Holy Spirit ordains sets apart and in a sense in an apostolic way he uses them as those who he sends out again acts chapter 13 says the holy spirit spoke and said separate unto me paul and barnabas for the work to which i've called them to it says the church prayed for them and it says they were sent out by the holy spirit and what were they sent out to do they were sent out sort of as missionaries they were sent out to plant churches. So I believe there are those still who function in an apostolic role where the Spirit of God may use them to be a church planner or to be a missionary on foreign soil and they're sort of sent out with that authority from Jesus and the calling to pioneer a new work, to break up the ground, lay a foundation, oversee the start of some new work that God is doing. He also mentions in this list those who are prophets. And prophets are those who are simply enabled by God to speak forth the word of the Lord. Not always in just a predictive sense, that's one form of prophecy, but also sometimes just a proclamation of a personal word from God to men. And there are those who the Lord, it seems, gifts and calls in a unique way, which I think is somewhat still a little bit separate from just the gift of prophecy operating on occasion. I believe and I see. And I'll be so bold as to say, getting to know the congregation here, that I even sense there are one or two that I feel like sometime may be functioning in this particular way, in a prophetic way, where they just have a special sense of being able to hear a timely word from the Lord and just to speak forth a prophetic word, a timely word from God that is helpful for his people. The, the ministry of prophecy is sort of a ministry of guidance, 1 Corinthians 14 says, He who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. And the one who has sort of a prophetic gift is, is someone who kind of just, they have a, a unique ability to just kind of hear a word from the Lord, and it's very timely, and to just convey that. 
And this may happen through, I found through times of prayer. It may come forth through just conversation, one-on-one, and a person just has an ability to just kind of give a timely word from the Lord to really exhort someone or to encourage or comfort one of the Christians in the church body. Thirdly, he mentions in this list also evangelists. Some to be evangelists. And the evangelist is someone with a special gifting to communicate the gospel of salvation. And with that also to then compel the unsaved to respond, listen, successfully. This is a real distinction of an evangelist. We are all called to share the gospel in the Great Commission. Every Christian should be a witness of Jesus Christ. We should witness and share the gospel with Jesus But it is clearly evident that some men, particularly it seems, have a special passion for souls and and seem to just have a complimentary anointing to share the gospel and to compel people to come to Christ and to believe upon Jesus. And they, they do such very effectively. This is sort of a gathering ministry. Those who just have an ability to cast the net and to draw in fish and and to just bring people to Christ in a real gathering way, just really evangelists. And again, I, I see at times those who I think, you know, I think this individual really seems to be an evangelist. It seems God's really given them that capability. Lastly, he mentions in this list in verse 11, also those who are called to be pastors and teachers. And I think pastor-teacher is sort of that role of serving as a shepherd, an instructive role. Again, once the evangelist leads someone to be born again and they become a child of God, the pastor-teacher then has the special ability from the Lord to kind of then help raise the children into maturity, to shepherd the flock, one who cares for the sheep and nurtures and protects them and provides leadership and guidance to the flock of God. That's what the word pastor means. The word teacher is an instructive role to feed, to ground people in an understanding of Scripture, to deepen people in their understanding of God. Uh, Paul told Timothy to be a workman who can rightly divide the word of truth. This is the the pastor-teacher gifting, the ability to take the word of God and study it and seek the Lord and prepare it and then communicate it in such a way that people can just grab hold of it and they understand it and it's applicable to their lives. And, oh, okay, I, that makes sense. That's, that's plain, that's clear. And to just communicate God's word in a way that it's digestible, people understand it, they're nourished by it, and they're instructed how to live for God. That's sort of this last area of ministry. And verse 12 says, notice that these particular ministry-oriented individuals are called to serve in the church, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So you see here sort of a twofold ministry focus, a dual responsibility. First of all, verse 12 says that these particular individuals are used by God to get people, first of all, trained for ministry. To get people trained for ministry. Do you see what verse 12 says? It says, for equipping the saints, Christians, for the work of ministry. Note the Bible does not teach that the way God works is that we just take a gifted, anointed individual who's called to be a minister, and and, and some are called to, to serve vocationally, and that's their calling from God. But God's perspective is not, well, okay, so we take those few individuals that do exist on the planet, and we pay them to do all the God work. 
And so they just do all the God work. No, God's agenda, God's plan is that those individuals be freed up to invest all of their energy, time, effort in a concentrated way to be able to equip, train, prepare, get ready the people of God so that many people can go out into the world and do ministry. To train people for ministry. Again, I think the office of a pastor teacher is sort of a function almost like a coach. What does a coach do on a sports team? If you've ever coached or you've played on a sports team, you know what the coach's job is. The coach's role is to try and help get all of the athletes who go out and actually do the work on the field in the midst of the competition to perform better or to perform to the best of their potential to achieve a victorious effort to get the team collectively ready and to get individuals performing to their highest potential in their particular role so that they can experience victory. And I think spiritually, this is sort of the role of, again, the evangelists, the pastor, teachers, individuals to equip, to strengthen, to prepare God's people for works of service, as some of your translations render that. To help the body of Christ be able to become competent, capable ministers and servants. And listen, ministry does not just happen in church meetings. This is one aspect of ministry, why well, I serve in this way in the church. And I, Listen, ministry happens all week long. All week long. As you go into your neighborhood, your job, you, you're a good minister in your family, starting there. And, and God can use you as a servant in your school to do ministry. And God can use you in your job, in your neighborhood, and with your extended family to do ministry. He can use you wherever you're at to look for little ministry opportunities because you're a solid Christian. You know the Word of God. You're sensitive to the Holy Spirit. You have a heart and compassion for people. You know, yesterday afternoon, I had to take my two older daughters we had to take a quick journey back up to York, Pennsylvania. And while they were visiting with some friends, I you know, took my laptop and sat in one of those, uh, you know, uh, used to be a Borders now, I think it's called BAM or something, you know, with all the books. And you, so I sat there and was finishing working on the, the message as I'm typically doing on a Saturday there with my laptop. And before I left, I was getting ready to go pick them back up to, to head back. And I thought, you know, I mean, this is a big bookstore. I like once in a while to just go see what kind of books are going on the shelves and what people are reading. So I just wandered back to the, uh, you know, religious section there in the store. Uh, and just I like to just kind of peruse and see what, what people are reading and interested in nowadays and what's on the shelves. And there was a, a man and a woman back there, and I'm just kind of, you know, glancing around. And the man just turns to me and he says, excuse me, sir, are you a man of faith? And I said, yes, actually, I am. Uh, and I say, I don't say, well, yes, I'm a minister of the gospel. See my credentials? I just, are you a man of faith? Yes, I am. That is what I am before I'm a minister. I'm, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. And he started sharing about something that he was going, going on in his family dynamic and how he and his wife were there perusing the hundreds of really hundreds of Christian books that were all there and he's looking through these books on these different topics because he's wanting instruction about you know this particular area and he's kind of divulging this and, uh, and he just oh, I just don't know what to do I'm looking for wisdom and, and so I just said I'll tell you what how about I just pray God gives you wisdom and I just put my I said what's your name he said Tom I put my hand on I just prayed for him Lord give Tom wisdom he's asking for wisdom I know he's looking for it in a book but I just pray that you just give him wisdom. And Lord, your word says, Jeremiah 33, call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. He doesn't know what to do. Lord, just show him what to do. 
prayed for him. He thanked me. And he went back to talking about the books again. And I said, look, sir. I said, I don't have a lot of time. But I said, I can tell you this. All these books were written by men. Wonderful, godly men. Yes. But I said, there's one book that was written by God. If you put your face in God's word and you pray, I promise you'll find the answer to what you're looking for. And I just turned around and walked away from him. Now, I don't say that to give you a, a glory story for myself. I say that to tell you as a Christian, that's ministry. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's ministry. It was about a seven-minute moment in my life, but that's ministry. I didn't tell him I was a minister and say, well, I'm a minister. Can I do some ministry? I'm just a Christian. I just ministered in the culture with a stranger in a seven-minute window. That's what's supposed to be happening, equipping the saints to serve and do ministry in their world, to serve and do ministry effectively in the body of Christ. He says, equipping the saints for works of ministry. Secondly, he says, verse 12, also for edifying, the idea is building up, bringing to health and maturity the body of Christ, building up the body of Christ. This is the role that should be happening in the functions and offices of ministry through the church. So again, take notice from verse 12, we also learn from the Bible the primary purpose and function of the church in its existence is not foremost the evangelization of the world. The primary purpose of the church gathering together is to worship Jesus and when Christians come together to be edified and encouraged and equipped to be mature, solid, healthy Christians to then go out and evangelize the world because they're living Christ-like and they're living healthy, strong Christian lives and they're reaching people around them and they're fulfilling the Great Commission as Jesus has called them to. Verse 13, Paul goes on here saying, till we all come, notice, to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect, again, mature, complete man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Again, here we see God's goal and aim through activities of the church. Number one, to experience unity. He says, verse 13, till we come to the unity of the faith. One of the things God's trying to do among the church is to help us learn how to accept and operate like a family among one another. To be not a social club but a spiritual family functioning together in unity. Secondly, God wants us to come from verse 13, we see to greater spiritual knowledge. He says to we all come to a knowledge of the Son of God. What God's trying to accomplish for a church body is that it would be developing in a deeper understanding of who Jesus is presenting Jesus in the gospel message of salvation and then further revealing Jesus through teaching, through counseling, through interacting with one another, learning more about who Jesus is, that that would be what we're doing. Hey, we're all getting to know Jesus better. We're all getting to have a deeper knowledge of who Jesus is. And thirdly, I see from verse 13 also spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity because he says till we come to the measure of the stature of the fullness of of Christ. Well, what does all that mean? Well, again, the fullness, the maturity of Christ. What is spiritual maturity? I think you can define it probably in a lot of different ways, but one clear way is that we're coming more into the measurement of the stature of Christ in the sense that the idea is we're becoming more Christ-like. That's when spiritual maturity is happening, when Christians are becoming more like Jesus in our attitude, our temperament, that there's a Christ-likeness that's developing in our lives as a result 
of us coming together congregationally. Verse 14, he goes on, that we should no longer, take note, no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. So again, following Jesus' blueprint, which leads to maturity, also as well leads to protection. He says, verse 14 here, that we will, or the idea is, he says, actually, we should, we should no longer be, take note of this word, children. When we're born again, we become a child of God. But the Bible tells us that we should not stay childish. Now, I want you to think some attributes of small children. Small children by nature are what? They're gullible, right? They're naive. They're easily misled because they're gullible and naive and they don't have the knowledge of someone more mature. So they're easily preyed upon and they're very vulnerable. Small children also tend to be unstable and kind of inconsistent. They're not the most reliable because they're just still children. So they're not real reliable. They're very inconsistent. It's just the nature of, of childishness. And the Bible's saying the same principle is true spiritually. This is what verse 14 is telling us, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro. Again, God's heart is that we would not be spiritually immature as Christians, that we would not be Christians who are prone to being childish. That, that He says that the function of the church operating in a healthy way, it keeps us safe, it matures us, and it protects us from the ways the enemy is trying to always trip us up as Christians and draw us back into his grasp. He mentions here, so that we're not tossed to and fro by the every wind of doctrine, wrong ideas blowing through the church all the time, and they constantly come. New ideas, you know, new books. Well, this is the new thing. It's holy laughter. It's prosperity gospel. It's the emergent church, you know. And, and new things are constantly blowing through the church. Ideas. Hey, this is the new cutting edge thing of spirituality. The Bible and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. I mean, well, that was good for them, but, but this is, we need 2014 Christianity. Right. We need the Bible, Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christianity. That's why 2014 Christianity in a lot of ways is anemic and unhealthy the way it is. Because we're always being blown to and fro in the church by these new winds of ideas and innovative ideas so people are looking more to just control people or persuade people or get their customer base or get their money or whatever else. And Paul's saying, look, if the church is being matured, it won't be easily blown to and fro by pseudo-Christian cults or false ideas of the gospel because see wrong theology will always lead to wrong thinking and it will lead to wrong behavior and God doesn't want that for us God does not want us to be naive unstable immature Christians and what is one of the ways as parents that we protect our children from vulnerability one simple way I'll tell you is we educate them if we educate our kids, we protect them from vulnerability. We invest in them to try and help them develop and mature so that they're not, in a sense, struggling with their immaturity and being vulnerable as a result. Verse 15, Paul goes on to say, but speaking the truth in love that we may grow up, notice the terms again, grow up in all things into him, Jesus, who is the head. So not only will we be able to recognize error, the Bible says, but as we mature, we also are able to respond by speaking what things 
are right to people. It's one thing to recognize error. It's a whole another benefit to be able to have the ability to speak what is right to help someone else out on occasion who's a part of your church family, speaking the truth in love. See, we should all become able and capable to admonish and rebuke one another, to challenge each other with the truth of God's word, to be on, on a, a caring basis, wanting to help someone else be careful that they don't get off target or get off track, speaking the truth and love into each other's lives to try and help one another. And again, underline that phrase, verse 15, that we may grow up in all things. That's pretty clear. God says, this is what I want spiritually for the church. I want the church and all those a part of it to be growing up in all things, in all areas of spiritual life. Their knowledge of God's word, their consistency of being able to walk with Jesus without wavering on their own to be reading their Bible and praying and seeking God, to be growing up and developing in their ability to be able to serve the Lord and share their faith and hear from the Lord and, and exercise and operate the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit through their lives, that this would be happening as we're growing up. Verse 16, he then says, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, notice again, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So as we each, as Christians, are growing individually, as we're each staying connected to Jesus who is the head, the Bible tells us here that in turn will then cause growth corporately for the body as a whole. And again, not just numerical growth, nothing wrong with that, not just numerical growth, but more important, spiritual growth, spiritual health, things like loyalty and learning commitment in relationships. See the language he uses there, verse 16? The body is joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. Just like a human body, the Bible uses the picture. What do joints do? Well, joints connect things in the body. Joints keep things in the body held together for stability and productivity. If joints aren't functioning correctly, the human body becomes spastic, it becomes painful, it's unstable, and it's not very productive. And here the Bible is saying, listen, being able to remain committed to relationships in the body of Christ, being able to remain consistently connected to a fellowship of believers is a mark of maturity. It's a mark of maturity. That like a, a joint and a ligament, you stay connected, you understand that you need what others supply to you. And notice as well from our verse here that you also have a responsibility from God to contribute what God wants to through your life. He says, by which every part, verse 16, does its share, that causes growth of the body. As every part does its share, that causes growth. Listen, every Christian is important. Every person in God's family is just as important to discover who you are, what God's called you to be, how he wants to use you, and to let God not just minister to you, but minister through you. Because it says, as every part does its share, it collectively contributes to the growth of the body. Again, if one of my organs stopped functioning, guess what? My whole body would have an issue. If just one organ stops functioning. Same is true in the body of Christ. Oh, what's a, well, I don't need to go to church. I need you to come to church. You see what I'm saying? Well, I don't need God's people. 
God's people need you. It works both ways. God wants to work in us and God also wants to work through us. So how, what does this look like practically? Well, quickly with me, go to the book of Acts chapter 2. And I want to expose you to just one last passage here from Acts chapter 2. Again, this may be familiar for many of you, but it kind of shows, I think, just what this looks like practically. Again, Acts chapter 2, the background, the inception of the early church. The church has just began and been born. Multiple thousands of people have come to Christ. And you get a brief snapshot in Acts 2 of what the early Christians were doing. What were the first Christians doing when they got saved? And here's a great model and pattern I think for the church also to aspire to. Verse 42, Acts 2, verse 42. The early Christians, it says, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. So notice here, the activities that the early church devoted themselves to, these are activities, four of them, verse 42 mentions, four activities that they were faithfully participating in that they were committed to and that they were regularly involved in first of all he mentions the apostles doctrine the idea there is learning and living out God's word they were devoted to they were committed to learning the word of God desiring to be taught about God, there was a real focus and emphasis on people getting to know God better through his word, getting to know who God was, what's God's will. The scripture was a central emphasis. There was a real focus on teaching, on the apostles' doctrine being learned. There was an emphasis, a priority of their lifestyles to want to be instructed from God's word and there was an emphasis in the early church of teaching the word of God and giving knowledge of God to his people. Secondly, we see also another emphasis or commitment they had is it says as well, verse 42, secondly, to fellowship. Now that word fellowship there, we throw it around a lot in the Christian life today. Hey, let's get together for some fellowship. And that word fellowship does not imply sort of a social club that was offering some really great programs that had a good moral basis like one of the other 4-H clubs in the society. That's not the idea there. That word in the original language is our word koinonia, which refers to a sharing together. It's a word that speaks of, in the Greek, of sharing with others what God has given unto you. Whether that's, again, your, your talents or whether it's your, you know, your, your fellowship and, and relationships or whether it's your... Re it's a sharing with one another, interacting with each other. It speaks of living together like a family, being involved in each other's lives, investing in one another, caring about one another, accountability, relational things that facilitate a connectedness where people are living and working and functioning together. Thirdly, he mentions they also had an emphasis, it says, upon the breaking of bread. Now, in that early culture, typically that likely included sharing a meal, which then would culminate in communion or celebrating the Lord's Supper. So again, Think with me. They were regularly partaking of communion in the early church and partaking of communion does two things in my estimation. First of all, it puts us in fresh remembrance of and it puts us always right in front of us again of the central themes 
of our relationship with God. Knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, understanding his forgiveness, remembering his shed blood, understanding repentance and sin and the value of faith and what Jesus has done for us. It puts us back into those central themes of our relationship with God. It also, I think, keeps us worshipful because communion is intended to be a very intimate, worshipful experience. So the early church had a real emphasis on worshiping the Lord and being worshipful. Fourthly, we see from verse 42, there also was an emphasis upon, it says, prayers. So they they had an emphasis on seeking God and intercession. They saw a necessity of spending time praying together, asking for God's involvement in their midst, in their lives personally, in their church, among the world they were living in, asking together for God to be at work in their midst. There there was this focus of, hey, we need to get together and pray. And we need to be praying not only together, but we also need to be praying for one another. So when people would see each other, there was an emphasis, hey, can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? Can I pray for you right now? And there was a focus on prayer. Now, these four things characterize the emphasis of the early church's activity. They were foundational things And I think they're foundational things that the church must be committed to if it is to experience all that God intends for it. And these are four things I can tell you that we seek to model our church emphasis after and activities and priorities that we believe practically we should be about. Putting an emphasis on the word of God. Putting an emphasis on the activity of seeking to cultivate fellowship People learning how to love and serve one another like a family and function like a family, not like a business organization, not like a social club, but like a family. Putting an emphasis on communion and celebrating the Lord's Supper and being worshipful and saying, hey, we need to be a church that prays, that gets together and prays. We're not going to have time to necessarily expand upon and expound, but I want you to read with me verses 43 to 47. And look here, these are results and byproducts of a church that was doing those things. Great fear came upon every soul. So there was a healthy fear of God and people weren't quick to enter into sin or remain in sin. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. So the power of God was moving in their midst. You read the book of Acts, you see lives being changed constantly as God's power was at work in their midst. Why? As a result of staying committed to the word of God and praying together and fellowship and so forth. Verse 45, here's a picture almost, or excuse me, verse 44 and 45 of this caring. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and dividing them along wall as anyone had need. So again, there it is illustrated. They were caring for one another. And this wasn't forced. This was just motivated by love. This wasn't communism where they were required to do it. This was just community love motivated by the Spirit of God. People wanted to care for one another and they did so. They got involved when they saw a need. Verse 46, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. So again, notice the Christian life was a daily thing. It wasn't a, a Sunday meeting thing. You see what I'm trying? It wasn't a, Christianity wasn't a Sunday meeting thing. I go do my Sunday meeting thing. No, daily the Christian life was an everyday experience. It says they gathered together in the temple for large meetings, 
but they also house to house in smaller settings and small groups of Christians getting together for these same things. It says eating their food with gladness, simplicity in their hearts. So there was joy and just a real simplicity. It wasn't a complex thing. It wasn't a complex organization. It just was a very simplistic approach. Praising God, they were worshipful. Having favor with all the people. The idea is having favor among the community. The church was a blessing in the community in which they were dwelling in. And verse 47 lastly says, And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Again, what did Jesus say? I will build my church. And there is illustration, an indication that he did and that he still does. The Lord, it says, was adding. He grew numerically as he caused numeric growth to happen. He added. And it says, and the Lord was saving souls. Maybe during church services. I'm sure that happened periodically. But I think predominantly, probably, as healthy Christians went out and like healthy sheep, they were reproducing all around in the world and then bringing their Christian friends in and saying, hey, let's grow in the Lord together as they were leading people to Christ. You know, our bulletin has a brief summary of whom we are. I just want to read it to you before we close. It, it says this, one of the statements in there. Listen to what it says. It says, We exist to glorify Jesus foremost in all things. We desire to be a gateway for people to meet Jesus in salvation, to come and be strengthened and equipped spiritually, and to go forth and minister in the world in which Jesus wants to reach. You know, before I close, let me leave you with this. If you're somebody who likes interesting outlines and, and, and you want a summarization in outline form, I'm going to give you my best stab at it right here, okay? We want people to worship Jesus, to walk with Jesus, and to work for Jesus. That's pretty creative, wasn't it? We want people to worship Jesus, to walk with Jesus, and to work for Jesus. This morning, how are you doing in those areas? Let's stand. Let's pray together.